Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. So Ben, we are back again. We are talking today about Ether 6 through Ether 11. And man, these these chapters are really fascinating simply for the fact is I feel like it's it's the same story over and over and over again. It's like you have this template and then you just kind of fill in different names. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the like, do you ever watch the Tom and Jerry cartoons where they're running and the same background just keeps going over and over again in the background. <laughs> so that's kind of this, you know, you have this same same basic plot of a story with some variations here and there of names and and stuff. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And so this podcast is going to be a little bit different in this discussion because we're not going to go over every single story and we're not going to be able to say, you know, this person did this and then, hey, this person did this because it's basically the same thing. So what we're trying to do here is to take out some general themes that we see and that Moroni is trying to tell us here and to maybe even get a glimpse into Moroni's way of thinking into his own relationship with God to see how perhaps the people here in Ether's day and in the Jaredite's day that they were seeing God themselves because there's not a lot of doctrine here. There's not a lot of exploring doctrine. It's a lot of history and a lot of like political ethics. And this story is if to say, I'm going to give you this really broad overview that look, if you're righteous, you do well. If you're wicked, you die. And and, and so it's kind of a, an interesting flavor, but here in chapter seven, or I'm, I'm sorry, here in chapter six, we have the final story of the Jaredites being brought from the old land into the new. It's kind of like, I, I was I was interested why they didn't include this into last week's Come Follow Me, because since this is kind of the end of the story for them, but they finally come to the Americas. Now they want to have a king. Nobody wants to be a king. Uh, any of the brother of Jared's sons, they all refuse. Then we have Jared himself, all of his sons, except for the last one, refuse. And from there, we just end up with this repeating story where you have a king who has a son, and that son ends up rising up in rebellion against his father and usually takes over. And what's really fascinating about this is over and over and over again, they don't actually ever kill their father. Which you would think that if you're doing some kind of like political espionage or some kind of coup, you're going to kill the person you just took over so they don't come back after you. But that's not the way they did it here. When they take over, they just put their father into subservience or into captivity is the word that is used. And then when in captivity, the father has children in captivity and it's those children who are like, this isn't fair. You were the king. And so the children born into captivity come back and fight the original sibling and usually win. So they reestablish their father back to the throne. And it's from the back to the throne that the father then gives the kingdom to the child that gave him back the throne. And then you go down a generation or two and it's the same story all over again. So I don't know. I kind of feel like that's, that summarizes the next 
five chapters. <laughs> but here we are, and uh, we get into Ether 8, and Ether 8 talks about secret combinations. And this is, we have a lot to say on this one, Ben. This is a really popular chapter in certain communities of the uh, of the LDS faith here, and especially for where you and I have been in what's called the Liberty Community. A lot of talk about secret combinations, and, and so we can get into that a little bit. But then from chapter nine, we end up with a different, we end up with different stories and again, the exact same pattern over again with the Kings and the, the prophets come in, the people reject the prophets. And then we have a famine and poisonous serpents, which is kind of a plot twist. And then in chapter 10 and 11, it just, it continues on. We have kings that rise up, kings that fall apart, and it's just this really fascinating overview of the Jaredite people. So chapter six, Ben, you had some interesting things about chapter six, kind of tail ending the story we had last week. We talked about allegory a lot because there's this really fascinating allegory of God bringing people out of the old place in which they've lived. And in bringing the people out of the old place in which they've lived, he leads them, but they can't really see who and what he is. He's this cloud. He's this vapor. He's this chaos. But they feel pulled. They feel as though God is pulling them. And so they follow it. And how many times in our lives do we have experiences where we don't know truly the whole true nature of God? We kind of have this image in our mind of who and what he is and of his loving nature. And yet he pulls us. And in pulling us, we it's like, I just feel drawn to, to following this particular path. And so we follow this path until things begin to be a little bit more clear. And so the brother of Jared's story is he learns to call upon the name of God. He learns to pray. He learns to come into a more deep relationship with God until finally he steps through the veil and it's through his faith that he ends up piercing the veil, stepping into the presence of God, seeing the finger of God, and then kind of the culmination of this is you see the embodiment of God. So God is no longer a cloud. He's no longer a vapor. He's no longer this formless, shapeless thing, but now you come into truly understanding his nature. And so this whole story of the brother of Jared unfolding seems to be a little bit of a allegory for our own personal journeys, our own going into the wilderness, because not only do they leave where they have been, but God leads them to a place that he's prepared. And in, in leading to a place that he's prepared, now we have the journey of the life story of going from the old into the new, into a, into a land that man has never been before. You've left all of your old stories, you left all of your old identities, you left all of your old context, your own, your old everything. Now you're going into something completely unknown where God is leading you in your life. And so I just, I, I love the whole story of the brother of Jared and of the Jaredites in this whole Exodus, like a pre-Exodus and so with chapter six, so Ben, what were some of your ideas here on chapter six in following through on that theme? Yeah. So, I mean, chapter six really is this continuation of this theme, like you were talking about of the people um, leaving their, well, originally, you know, they were under Nimrod and, and with all of this, um, the Tower of Babel stuff and, and, and everything there. And they were, they were in a situation that was so tyrannical that it descended into chaos. And it was a, it was a bad type of chaos. What do we call chaotic evil, right? Because you had nobody able to understand each other, all these bad situation. So they're trying to come out of this, trying to maintain a semblance of order and come out of this. So they maintained their family and friends order. And then they, 
they depart into the wilderness, which is the chaotic good, right? This is the wilderness God has created, but it is not civilization, right? It's wild. And so there are some some risky things there, but it's not the it's not the chaos, the the violent chaos necessarily of uh, the tyranny that they were under, or the the result of the tyranny, I should say. So they go out into the wilderness, and they're spending all this time there, and uh, they get to the ocean, they get to the very edge of what they're able to do, and then they have to to stop. And we have this whole this whole story that we discussed last time of this, this is a very, like I said, ancient and very profound founding myth. And it's it's akin exactly to the Israelite exodus. And there's so many parallels here. But in, in very interesting and fascinating ways, it's also its own thing. And um, when I was listening, re-listening to last week's podcast, I realized that I said something that was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but people who don't know me might have misunderstood it. I said, yeah, you know, Joseph Smith was really good at coming up with all of this stuff. <laughs> but, you know, if they, if they know me, that, my, my, that was tongue-in-cheek. My point being that it's so complex and so profound, I don't believe he could come up with it on his own. Um, that was to say that, you know, that was sort of the the – the devil's advocate in terms of what the critics, the straw man of the of the the critics of the Book of Mormon will often say, you know, that Joseph Smith came up with all of it. And yet when we really delve into these things, they're so complex and so profound and so ancient in in their construct that that to think like a 20-year-old kid could come up with this, you know, just seems ludicrous to me. But anyway, I digress from the, the point of the story. That so they get here to the waters and they can't go any further. So the Lord has them build these barges, which they are, and these barges are very, very meticulously constructed, right? These are, these are very well put together pieces of order that they are going to get inside of, uh, ostensibly like by family, right? You know, they've got, they got eight of these. And so you're going to have these family units that are going, people are going to go into these family units, very well ordered constructs that are created in order what? To pass the, the great waters, and these great waters are utter chaos. These are the primordial waters of, of creation. And this is so akin allegorical in terms of like how we have our plan of salvation narrative in Latter-day Saint. Uh, I don't know if it's theology or just, you know, our narrative of the plan of salvation. It's So it's very interesting sort of parallel there. So we have in verse 3 this, this statement, Thus the Lord caused stones to shine in darkness— to give light unto men and women, men, women, and children, that they might not cross the great waters in darkness. So they're going into the chaos, into the darkness, but they're taking light with them. So here we are. The Lord has given us an understanding, um, what we might call our um, light of Christ. Uh, Moroni talks about this later. Uh, as we've come into this life, and we're to cross these waters of our mortality with this light that the Lord has given us. And this is the revelation. And it's symbolized by stones. And what does Christ say to Peter? You're the rock on which I would build my church, the rock being revelation. Peter's name literally means stone. All of this is tied into this ancient profound symbolism of revelation and stones being synonymous. Um, and that's why I said last time, you know, it, it, there's it, it's very interesting to me that we have these Urim and Thummim, these stones as being this literal and also symbolic representation of a revelation. So anyway, that I, I pulled that out of verse three. <laughs> <laughs> I like um, it. 
But but yeah, as as we're going down here, they they go into the waters of chaos, and they're they're periodically buried and periodically come out of out of the waters of chaos. Right? These are these are baptisms. These are them descending into the chaos and coming back out, being reborn through their faith. As it says, they did cry unto the Lord, and he did bring them forth again on the top of the waters. I think it's interesting that it took almost a year, you know, in the water. And I've always wondered, like, if this is the ocean, salt water, how do they survive there without fresh water for a year? It says they even had flocks with them, so I don't know how that happened. Uh, Maybe there's ways of doing it that I don't understand. Uh, They get to the promised land, and here they finally come to this this place that the Lord has been promising them this whole time, right? This promised land. And they decide to to spread out on the land and prosper, so to speak. Um, It talks about how their families are divided up. They are a patriarchal society. Here we have their system of quote-unquote government in verse 17. They were taught to walk humbly before the Lord, and they were also taught from on high. So verse 17 to me is sort of a a reformulation of that principle. Joseph Smith says, I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves. So this is is sort of the the natural government of the people. They're organized by family. They are just taught correct principles. They govern themselves. Well, as the society grows, becomes more complex, um, you have these original patriarchs, Jared and the brother of Jared getting old. They decide, you know, we're, we're going to be passing on. How do you guys want, what do you guys want to do going forward? People say we want a king. Um, this is a re- repeating theme in the Book of Mormon. You have Nephi who is like, eh, don't, you know, probably not good to have a king. Alma says, eh, it's probably not good to have a king. So we go through all of these things. Jared says, suffer them to have a king. This is, this is reminiscent of 1 Samuel chapter 8. When um, the people say, give us a king, the Lord says, yeah, you can have a king, but all these things are going to happen. You're going to be brought into captivity, basically what what the brother of Jared tells them. Um, But the people say, we want it anyway. The Lord says, okay, let him have a king. Um, So I see the voice of the brother of Jared here, a warning, and then Jared saying, suffer them that they may have a king. This seems to be a very important decision on the part of the people about how they're going to organize their society going forward. And it has all kinds of consequences to it. And it's by no means, you know, we can't blame it necessarily on this point in time, because if these people hadn't decided to have a king, probably the next generation would have. You know, <laughs> like Somewhere in there, people are going to decide to have a king. Um, this seems to be kind of the natural order of things. But in any case, just like the brother of Jared said, it's going to bring them into captivity. And then it's also going to be the catalyst by which these secret combinations come to be because all of a sudden you have this centralized power and um, people are going to use their means in order to, you know, control the one ring, so to speak, and and get their way. And so I kind of see that sort of as that natural progression of how things are going to go. You're, you centralize the power and then you're going to have um, everybody clamoring for that. And then you're going to have these secret combinations developing, which we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure at length when we get to chapter eight. Yeah. You know, I love absolutely everything you said about the allegory there and the being buried down into the depths of chaos and that symbolism that you tied to, to baptism and the repeated tied to baptism. It's like, there's this repeated emptying, this repeated going back and letting go of everything that, uh, that was there. And I couldn't help but re- remember Helaman 512, where it talks about, 
how when we build upon the rock of Christ, that when the devil sends forth the mighty winds and the shafts in the world winds, when all the hail and the mighty storm beat upon you, that doesn't have any power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe. And it's, and it's almost like there's a cross comparison here where it's talking about that these ships, these things that the Lord had commanded that you talked about, they were so meticulously built in order to preserve them on the waters of chaos that we've created some type of order that preserves us over the chaos. And in doing so, when those things, when life comes crashing down, there's something around us that, uh, that is there to help us. And yeah, I, I absolutely love that, that, that symbolism there. And as far as coming through with building a king, I, I'm reminded the, the parallels here into the Old Testament are uncanny because you have God leading the people out of Egypt. And when they lead them out of Egypt, they see the same vapor, they see the same cloud, the, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And when they get to the to the base of when they get to the base of Sinai, and they build a golden calf, that we we often think that the golden calf was a a false god from Egypt, and the symbol may have been, but they were they were actually trying to embody an image of Yahweh. It was supposed to have been uh, an image of Yahweh that they were creating with the golden calf, and so, but it was a false image. It was an image that they had brought with them. You know, just like it says in DNC one that we make gods in our own image, that in gods in our own likeness. And so we are continually trying to come into a knowledge of who and what God is. And there's things and there's embodiments and projections of our, of our past lives that we haven't emptied yet that we now project onto God. And these are the things that we need to repent from. So when, when the Israelites need to repent, they need to repent of their old ideas of God, the things that they have brought with them from out of Egypt for 400 years. They haven't gotten rid of those yet. They're, they're not ready to cut ties with Egypt yet. So when they come into the new world and they're now there in the promised land, over a period of time, they're ruled over by God. You know, So they have these judges. And until finally in the days of Samuel, they want to have a king. And it's even been prophesied that, that God says that they will want to have a king one day in Deuteronomy. Until finally in 1 Samuel 8, they want to have a king because they want to be like everything else that's around them. The context of this military king, because they couldn't have a military otherwise, right? There's no military appropriations throughout the five books of Moses for them to be able to even have a military. Mm -hmm. And so right. they want to have a king because up until this point, God's taken care of them. But now they're in the major crossroads of Syria to the north. You got Babylon to the east. You got Egypt to the south, you know, to the southwest. And they're right there in the crossroads of all that. And so to have a king was to have a symbol of earthly power. And God gives them a king. And that's when they get Saul, David, and Solomon. But the irony here is that in Hebrew, to anoint the head with oil and to make and to set apart as king in Hebrew is Messiah. And so when the literal prophet comes out and picks the new Messiah anoints his head with oil and sets him apart, we now have a messianic king in Saul, David, and Solomon. And we, the Jews believed that was because of their righteousness that they were given a king, when in reality, it was God's mercy in them giving them what they want that he then set the parameters around that king that he, you know, he, he had to read the law every single day and he couldn't have large harems of women and he couldn't overly tax them. I know the grass is always... Which, which they, they all did, did anyway. <laughs> which they all did anyway. <laughs> You know, fast forward to Solomon, right? Holy cow. So then when we uh, when we get to these positions where these kings start abusing their the, this authority and it's the grass is always greener because these people wanted a king, but they didn't really know what it was like to have a king. 
and what the kings were doing. But God comes along and says, all right, well, you say you want this, but I'll, I'll give it to you, but I'll try my best to be able to help you so that you're not completely taken over like everybody else who lives in these kingdoms when, and they don't want to have a king, right? And so, yeah, with the Jaredites, I see the same thing going on. God leads them out. God is their forward. God delivers them out. God leads them to this place. And yet they could never truly cut the ties of the old identities. It's, it's like Lot's wife. You, you can, we can never truly leave Sodom and Gomorrah behind. There's always something that we want to turn around to. And so in this way, you see these people and how grievous this must have been for them because the foundations and the narratives of what it means to have a king in their context anyway, not like to have Christ as the anointed king, because when the true Messiah came, the Jews who were looking for the old Messiah, the, the false messiahs and, and you know the, the false constructs and the archetypes of Saul, David, and Solomon, that's what they were looking for. They were looking for some militaristic, nationalistic, Jewish, kick everybody out and just make a Jewish nation state kind of a king and a messiah. And so when the true Messiah came, they were looking for someone to reign with violence against their enemies. And when the true Messiah came and said, no, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you and pray for them, which despitefully use and persecute you. This type of Messiah didn't make any sense. And so they eventually used the violence that they were looking for against him. Just like we find out that all throughout this narrative that under the Kings, when the prophets come, (laughs) The people stone them, the people cast them out, the people use violence against them. Mm-hmm. So it's it really is. It's the same narrative happening over and over and over again. It's actually fantastic. You know, in the context of the Book of Mormon here, um, these these repeated stories are very interesting because the the Nephites get this record in the time of Mosiah. Uh, you know, very first podcasts we did, we started in Mosiah 29. And this is that whole chapter where Mosiah lays out, hey, we should, you know, we shouldn't have kings anymore. We should go to judges. That entire chapter is in the context of them having just received this Jaredite record. The whole people have read it. They're all like, wow, this, um, this is really awful. Look at all these things that happened with these kings. You know, so far we've been pretty lucky with the way that we've done kings, except for King Noah. You know, that was pretty bad. Um, but you know, we, so far we've been pretty lucky. We've had good kings. And Mosiah says, yeah, you have. But that's not always going to be the case. I mean, look at these people. So, the, you know, that is how Mosiah kind of persuades the people, you know, in the in the context, couched in the context of this narrative that they've just received. Hey, we need to go away from kings. Um, and it's it, it's kind of interesting. You know, it's, it's a laudable attempt. But as we discussed, you know, just them changing their form of government didn't actually bring about any um, significant societal improvement. Um, you know, they still had terrible wars. They still had the secret combinations come up, um, you know, not too many generations later. Um, and so, the you know, we find out that it wasn't the form of government that was necessarily the problem. It was the hearts of the people and what they desired. And whether it was under chief judges or kings, you know, the name of the head of the government didn't make any difference. It was what the people really wanted to happen. And, and um, you know, we read a lot of those meta narratives here as to, as to what the Nephites desired and their attitudes toward their culture and so forth. Um, but like I said, what what's so interesting about this narrative as we're reading in this repetition of these stories is, hey, this is, these are the stories that persuaded the Nephites to try to change their system of government as a way of 
of warding off these terrible things that happened. And it didn't really work for them um, because it wasn't the system of government that was the problem per se. It was the righteousness of the people and and how they you know decided to organize their site their society um, as such. Yeah. So moving into chapter seven, we have this these stories now begin to repeat, and now we have kings and they have children, and those children then go out and rebel against them and take away their kingdom. And then you have the sons come up and basically take it back. So, well, there's a bunch of them, you know, you have all these, these up and downs and and back and forth, but the main guy here that um, gets the attention is Shul. You know, he becomes sort of the archetypal king, I would say he, he's able to put down these dissensions. He's able to unite the people. He's um, he's mighty in judgment. It says he he's a good king. It says he reigns in righteousness, um, and he he encourages the prophets to go out and teach all the people. And so, under Shul, you know Shul's about as good as you can get in terms of kings, right? Like he's the Jaredite king Benjamin, and uh, seems to seems to work really well in terms of like how good you can get with a king as your your government. So in chapter seven, Ben, we have a lot of this this whole repeating everything about prophets and coming among the people and the kings, their sons, and and the combinations that came about. So moving into chapter eight, we have again this whole story of a son who wants to be king, but it's a little bit different because this time we have Omer who's the king, and Jared was had was king and then lost the kingdom. But now in Jared's sorrow, because he's lost the kingdom, Jared's daughter comes along. And it's not just this same story of that was repeated before and after, but Jared's daughter, now they're going to actually start to get this whole plot going on against Omer. And so Jared's daughter says, listen, if you bring in a Kish and a Kish comes in, I'm going to dance for a Kish. I'm going to get his favor and he's going to want to marry me. But before he marries me, you're going to tell him to go kill grandpa, as it were. You're going to go tell him to kill your father so that we can basically get on the throne. And so that's how this whole secret combination begins, is that Akish, and it's it's absolutely fascinating in, in that when they finally do get Akish, you know, she dances for Akish, Akish wants her to wife. Then Jared is like, well, you've got to kill my father. And and so Akish goes back to his family and his his little tribe, as it were, and he has them swear to him that they won't reveal anything that he's going to tell him before he tells them this. Now, I don't know about you, <laughs> but if anybody's getting me to like make promises that I'm going to do something before I actually know what it is, I'm highly, I'm highly suspect. Or you will or die. You will die. Yeah. <laughs> right. That, that those are. Red, red flag. Flags, right? <laughs> and so, you know, but that's the case. So then we end up with the beginning of these secret combinations because now they're all oath bound. And, you know, we've talked about oaths before and about the secret of the, the power of the oaths and about how these societies operated by these oaths and about how powerful they were. We just don't operate with that same kind of zeal towards promises and oaths in our civilization and culture anymore today. Yeah, I mean, I I see a a lot going on here, you know, and and Moroni later comments on this, um, talking about what's really going on. And so we get a lot of um, 
sort of regression here of of Moroni commenting on this story before we return back to the story. Which, again, it's just so interesting that we have so much Moroni commentary. Like basically, Book of Ether is 50% history, 50% Moroni commentary. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, end of verse 17, you know, Akish administered unto his kindreds and friends, leading them away by fair promises to do whatsoever thing he desired. I just kind of wrote in the margin, politicians, right? <laughs> Akish was, was pretty good at that. Here Moroni starts commenting. He says, For the Lord worketh not in secret combinations, neither doth he will that man should shed blood, but in all things hath forbidden it from the beginning of man. This is an interesting thing for Moroni to say, and uh, we have to figure out what he means by this, uh, because Moroni has apparently in various places you know, justified violence or the shedding of blood. And here he comes out and gives a statement about what the Lord really commands. And it's actually, we can back this up, you know, um, after the flood, he says to Noah, you know, everything, you know, thou shalt not shed blood. Um, and then even if you kill animals, I'm going to require an account of that from you. You know, um, it's not just people, but even animals, you need to, you know, justify that. Um, so it's very interesting that Moroni comes out and says this, um, you, you know, earlier, uh, when Mormon was talking, um, in the end of Mormon, this might actually be Moroni. No, it is Moroni. Yeah. So Moroni says, um, judgment is mine, saith the Lord, vengeance is mine also, you know, man shall not smite, neither shall he judge. So Moroni does say this multiple times, lay down your weapons of war, don't smite. The Lord says he's forbidden the shedding of blood. Um, and yet it still ends up being justified multiple times um, in Nephite society and even in Jaredite society. So it, it is kind of interesting here. Moroni knows this is the commandment, the ideal. Um, he knows that as a society, uh, people find a very hard time uh, very difficult to live up to this commandment and this imperative of the Lord, um, and yet he still states it right here as the complete opposition to these secret combinations, which their whole purpose um, is to get gain, and they do it by lying and murdering. Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I was really toying with this and, and thinking about this scripture a lot too this week as I was reading over it, and as I've come to it multiple times over the years when we have this is one of those scriptures that doesn't give any other follow-up amendments to it you know usually you, you will have mm -hmm. whenever the prophets have ever been promoting peace or promoting promoting this message of, of almost going into a nonviolent kind of a talk then immediately thereafter is all of the addendums and amendments and caveats that that in a lot of ways seem to invalidate, invalidate. everything they just said about the peace <laughs> thing right and Dilute. so, yeah. you know, there's a lot of really famous talks about uh, from President uh, McKay and from Latter-day Prophets. And it's hard sometimes being able to to weave around this because it seems that even they're conflicted. And as I've read a lot of the histories behind the scenes, they really were conflicted. They really were conflicted because they saw all of the human depravity and the emotions and the human experience that's going along in how the wicked world operates and how much love and care and compassion they have for these people. And yet there is this gospel of Jesus Christ and this, the sermon on the Mount thing 
that seems so untenable at so, at so many parts of our lives, and especially when we're truly confronted with what we perceive as this real embodiment of evil, then we're like, man, like, where's the middle ground? How do you respond to that? How do you that? respond yeah. to that? And so for me, I've just learned to have so much love and respect and compassion for these prophets in these moments. Um, you know, President Hinckley's talk in 2000, uh, in 2001, when he gets up and he talks about uh, just after 9-11 happened. And then when he talks in, in conference of April of 2003, just after the U.S. went to war in, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And that talk hasn't really aged very well. Um, you know, he talks and I've always loved and respected president Hinckley because he does, he says he, I've sought for the inspiration of the Holy ghost in this talk. And then he said, I'm going to lay out the course that governs my own principles. And yeah, you can see that struggle, you know, realizing there's this principle here, but you know, how do we reconcile this? And, And, and it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, Moroni gives some very, this is very strong language here, but in all things hath forbidden yeah. it. And so like you say, you know, it is, it is a difficult thing to reconcile for a lot of people because we're so caught up in the assumptions and narratives of society and government and the way the world works that letting those go is is very difficult to do in any context. And so there's not there doesn't need to be any fault finding no. here. Um, in terms of like, you know, what principles we choose to adhere to. But I do think, you know, it's very interesting that Moroni mentions this right here because it's, he, he shows that this seeking for the shedding of blood and the lies that are happening now among these secret combinations are, are inexorably, you know, entwined. I don't even know if that's the right word. Yeah. <laughs> They're entwined. And as he goes on and discusses this, he says, this caused the destruction of the people that I'm now talking about. Um, He says, um, you know, we're going to have more to say about some of these verses here, but going over to verse 25, he says, for it cometh to pass that whoso buildeth it up seeketh to overthrow the freedom of all lands, nations, and countries. And it bringeth to pass the destruction of all people. For it is built up by the devil, who is the father of all lies, even that same liar who beguiled our first parents, yea, even that same liar who hath caused man to commit murder from the beginning. So this is alluding to Cain. So I know you have some things to say about the Cain narrative and how it relates to this, and it really fits together quite quite fascinatingly. Who hath hardened the hearts of men, that they have murdered the prophets and stoned them and cast them out from the beginning. So here we have uh, how the you know the father of lies, Satan, he uses. Um, these desires for power and gain um, by the method of lies and murder in order to achieve his ends. This made me think of um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn and what he has to say about the relationship between violence and lies, or as it's translated, falsehood. Um, And so I, I went and found this quote from him. He says, let us not forget that violence does not live alone and is not capable of living alone. It is necessarily interwoven with falsehood. Between them lies the most intimate, the deepest of natural bonds. Violence finds its only refuge in falsehood. Falsehood, its only support in violence. Any man who has once acclaimed violence as his method 
must inexorably choose falsehood as his principle. Um, I think that's really profound. We could probably unpack that for quite a while. But in, in other words, the the tie between the lies and the oaths of these secret combinations and then the fact that they go about murdering in order to achieve their ends, um, these are, are um, fundamental to how they bring about their ends. And so what we end up seeing with this whole secret combinations in society is that they have a complete collapse and destruction. They just end up you know, destroying each other. This is what happened with the Nephites. And this is what Moroni is talking about. You know, you build this up, you build a society based on lies and murder, and it's just going to end up in complete destruction. There's no other way it can end up. And that is exactly Alexander Solzhenitsyn's point in his uh, Gulag Archipelago, where he talks about the entire Soviet society and how it was completely based on lies. And how did they achieve their ends? Just by murder, you know, they they sent people to the gulags. You have hundreds of millions of people um, over the course of, of the history of, of this that die because of a society that's completely based on lies. He says people were lying to themselves. They were lying to their friends, their neighbors. Government was lying to the people. People were lying to the guy. Everybody was lying to everybody. And you have an entire society built on lies. And that was necessary because of the violence. And so he, you know, he ties these two together. And so I think that's interesting how that parallels what's going on with these secret combinations. Moroni points this out, you know, and um, we have this in the Book of Mormon published, you know, even many, many decades before Solzhenitsyn. But, you know, as this story goes with the secret combination, that's exactly how it pans out. The society just implodes because it cannot support the weight of all these lies and murders. Yeah, that's powerful. I love that quote. I love that quote. I, I hadn't heard that before. I read that before. Since you, when you brought that up, and I was like, man, that fits this story so well. Because right here, and you're mm-hmm. right, with the Cain narrative, we've talked about it a lot before. And I remember reading it. I was, I was heading home in June. I was at the, I was up at a conference in Boise and I was reading a book on the way back. And it just, it hit me this whole Cain narrative because it's in the NRSV. I have a couple copies of the NRSV, one from you know, Oxford and HarperCollins, and it has some commentary to it. And they had this section that after the Cain story and after it says that he went out from talking with God and married his sisters and had his children and his children created, became the first artisans as it were. They're the ones that build the first city, the first city wall. And then it says the beginning of civilization. And that was the added segment there in the NRSV. And it hit me. I was like, my goodness, this is the Cain narrative. And so it's, it's, you know, we've dubbed it the Cain narrative, this story of how this story of Cain and how he entered into this relationship with Satan, the, the accusing voice, and whether it's the external accusing voice in a personification of the actual embodiment of Lucifer, or whether or not it's that accusing voice within each and every single one of us, or both, right? And a co- or a combination of both. It, 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 it doesn't matter because it works the same in every single of these situations where we have this part of ourselves where we are Cain and we are we are God and we are Satan when we read that scripture we actually play a part in each and every one of those conversations and so when i was reading in verse 21 if you go back from where you read verse 25 if you go back to verse 21 
it says, and they have caused the destruction of the people of whom I am now speaking, and also the destruction of the people of Nephi. And whatsoever nation shall uphold such secret combinations to get power and gain until they shall spread over the nation, behold, they shall be destroyed. For the Lord will not suffer that the blood of his saints, which shall be shed by them, shall always cry unto him from the ground for vengeance upon them, and yet ye have avenged them not. Well, this is powerful stuff. Because this whole thing speaks to the Cain story. We have, you know, and, and you and I were talking before recording that it's so hard to find examples of secret combinations. And you and I have both kind of come from a background where we were heavily inculcated into studies of like Ezra Taft Benson and the proper role of government and kind of right wing conservatism and everything that the church had said through the rise of modern Mormonism about uh, about constitutionalism and, the, and that whole way of thinking, right? And in that, we have uh, this way of looking at secret combinations, you know, through kind of a Benson, Ezra Taft Benson view, where he sees communism and socialism as that existential threat to humanity and the embodiment of the secret combinations. And since those times, you know, I read him growing up. I know you've you've read him, been exposed to a lot of them too. Every book by President Benson that he wrote, This Nation Shall Endure, uh, the title of Liberty, The Red Carpet. I mean, I've read The Red Carpet probably half dozen times. There's a, a book called Prophets, Principles, and National Survival by Gerald Newquist, where it's a compilation of what all the general authorities and the prophets of the latter, you know, the latter days have said about government and agency and constitutionalism and freedom and agency. And man, I, I read that book over and over and over and over again growing up. Basically, I had the whole thing. Shiloh it was Bible. a yeah, really. <laughs> it was a Shiloh <laughs> Bible. Shiloh could win. Any any conversation about communism, you know, and, and, and at BYU we call it the Mormon Trump card, where yeah. if uh, if you you know if you had a good quote from a good prophet about your point, you won because if you bring in a prophet into the discussion, it's like you win, and and because you know are you going to challenge the prophet and what the prophet said about it? Yeah, and so right. it, it was a way of ending discussion as a way of opening it up, right? And so the Mormon Trump card. And so at that point we began to joke and he's like, well, you know, I'll see your, I'll see your Gordon B. Hinckley and I'll raise you two Ezra Taft Bensons. Right. So, so it's like, we started to almost pit the prophets against each other. You know, my prophet said this, well, my prophet said that, well, mine said it this way. And so it became like an internal Bible bashing. You know, we talk about Bible bashing on our missions. We started doing this you know, when I was going through uh, studying philosophy and political science at BYU, we'd do this all the time, but we would use our own theology, our own scriptures, you know, this scripture and, and against your prophet. And it's just, it's a horrible way to live. But in this way, it was, we studied these things and, and we got to see that, yeah, there is this conspiracy of men and women who are seeking for political power. And I'm sure that's that's there. I did a lot of politicking when I was when I lived in Utah, and I got to meet some fascinating people and some great people when I was there. And yeah, there were some things that I would deem that there was some corruption that existed there. And there was a lot of things, a lot of stories that I still hear, even in Utah's political um, structure about the corruption that exists there, and w places where you wouldn't expect it to be, right? Because it's Utah. It's it's where. The church's headquarters are, and that's supposed to be like Mecca. It's a, that's the place where like honest politics should exist, right? And yet, <laughs> it, it doesn't. Honest I know. Right? 
But in that particular place, it's like, no, it is it is as dirty as it is anywhere else. And they just play it, it differently. And so in this way, it was, I, over the years, I've been thinking, all right, what what is really going on with these secret combinations? You know, President Benson's book, The Red Carpet, when he wrote as an apostle, the Red Carpet is a fascinating book. I agree with with President Benson so much in principle on so many of his views because they, you know, and they speak to me and, they, and they're, they're reflective in things like the Sermon on the Mount and the scriptures and they're very consistent with the gospel message. But a lot of his predictions were just built on a lot of really false assumptions. And and there, were a lo- there was a lot of information he was getting because of his political connections at the time. And there's been a lot of research and a lot of scholarship done on this. And especially coming out nowadays, there's a lot of really great scholarship coming out about it, where a lot of the predictions as far as being able to identify what the secret combinations were and how they were going to operate and what they were going to do and how all of this was going to happen, it just never really came to fruition. And it all fell apart. And, and so you're like, well, that, that's kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting thing. So I've kind of stepped back a little bit and I'm like, okay, well, we can talk about political secret combinations and we can get into conspiracy theories, you know, and, and I know president Benson's favorite, that favorite quote that a lot of my, my politically charged friends still use, you know, and president Benson said, the book of Mormon is not a con- conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy fact, right? <laughs> And so that's, you know, that's the Book of Mormon message. It's, it's a conspiracy fact that there's a lot of secret combinations going on in here. And it's true. But for the average listener, anyone listening to this, or for the average person, we have zero context to this. There's no context that we have where we know people who are making secret oath bloodbound covenants for to make murder and to get have murder and to get into office and to power. And how would that even look in our country? You know, I know a lot of my conservative friends would say, you know, about Hillary and and all, all of the deaths right. and all of the murders that surrounded, supposedly surrounded the Clinton family. And they're like, look, that's like the the embodiment of all of the corruption, the evil and everything that you could possibly have. Right. And you, you they point fingers at the at the Clinton family. And I was like, but if that's true. It didn't really serve him very well. She never got elected. She she ran a bunch of times and she never got elected into the into the office of president. Like that didn't seem to work out for her. And so either she must have had not a very, not a very good secret combination order or something. I don't know, but these things are supposed to happen. So you get into office, not so that you end up failing at things. And so either secret combinations don't always work, or if they do, what do they even look like? And so I'm kind of tired of that conversation personally. So, well, they're secret. You're not supposed to know what they look like. All right, good point. But it, it, when I'm imagining a secret combination, like in in my day and context and everything, I know people have differences of opinions from me. But mm-hmm. what I see today is that people who have differences of opinion, we often put into this whole, well, you're duped by the secret combinations. So if you have a difference of a view than me, I'm the one that has the correct view. And if you gr- right. you're different than me, you're in a secret combination. It's the Satanization of the other. Yeah, exactly. And I just don't find any value in that anymore. You know, I, I, I used to be in that. I used to argue that. I know it really well. I know the draw. I know the pull. I know the emotions and the emotionalism that, that's there when you believe so ardently in a thing that you feel justified in otherizing the other person. And it's taken me a lot to try to get away from that and to repent from that. And anyways, I may still be repenting at it for the rest of my life because it's so 
it's so addicting and it is so deceitful. And so to get away from that has been one, one of my own life challenges in being able to see other people simply as a child of God. And man, that's hard. But when we start coming back here to these narratives, the reason why I go back to the Cain narrative is because I'm, like we were talking about before recording, I'm looking for narratives that go beyond just the obvious political narratives to bring it down to like a meta narrative. And that's why I see the Cain narrative is so powerful because we all live in it. We all still mm-hmm. live. That Cain narrative is the glue and the story and the narrative that binds our civilization together. It's the thing which completely binds man's way of government together. When we look at, for instance, the governments of men, they operate by coercion and violence. You know, what's the famous phrase, you know, Max, uh, Max Weber ended up saying that, uh, and I'm loosely paraphrasing where he says that government is the socially acceptable institutional monopoly of violence and coercion. And that's what we have. We have set up institutions where we use coercion and violence and we accept violence a priori. We accept it before any experience. We accept it as the most natural building block of civilization. And the only discussion is, is who, what, where, when, and how much violence we can use. And we call that justice. So that when we have like the constitution, it says that we should, and the bill of rights, it says that we should have no cruel and unusual punishment. That's simply a matter of how much violence we can use and where we can use it and what kind of violence we can use in order to curb social behavior. So there's bad behavior that we want and there's violence that we're going to use against that. But we don't actually question violence. We question how much violence we can use. And that's going to be as different as per every society and every head that that you ask that question to. And so that's the Cain narrative is when we accept violence a priori. When we accept that's the building block and the necessary element to creating order in society, that's what, that, that's what we're talking about. That's, that's part of what we're getting at here. And in that way, that is a narrative that every single one of us has application and it's applicable to every single one of us. I know you were talking about getting away from that, getting away from that idea, that narrative, that Cain narrative and, and, um, and you know, the being uh, looped into the conspiracy theorist thing, which is a rabbit hole that, you know, without end type of stuff. Um, I, I see that actually playing out here in the story, in the text, because, you know, there's this whole discussion about how they're going to murder and and gain the kingdom and everything like that. And so I, I swear, almost every single time that I read this, I'm like, oh, poor Omer, they're going to kill him. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, wait, <laughs> chapter nine, what happens? Omer's warned by the Lord in a dream, and he leaves. He gets away from all of that, right? He just leaves it all behind. Um, This is a repeating theme in the scriptures of prophets um, or peoples being warned um, that they're going to be killed, and so the Lord telling them to depart. He didn't tell Omer, hey, um, these people are going to come kill you. Get your guards around you and fight a war against them so that you can win and, and defeat these secret combinations. He told Omer, leave. Go out of the land. He told Lehi, leave. He told Nephi, leave. He told Alma and his people, leave. Uh, Mosiah, uh, the first, leave, right? And so this is a very common theme of the Lord to to tell a people to, to leave, to depart from this, that if you just stay there and adopt this narrative and fight against it and, and you know, become 
in opposition to this, you're just going to turn into the same thing. You have to get out of there. You have to leave it be. You have to have nothing to do with it. And so I, I think that that goes along with what you were talking about, about just trying to to get out of that, get away from that mindset uh, rather than be enveloped by it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because when it doesn't mean that we leave. I remember listening to uh, a message by Elder Holland, and it's been, I don't know, 12 years now. But he talked about Zion and about how the Lord always commands his people to flee. And that has been a major theme, just like what you were talking about. But he said, now we have nowhere to flee anymore. There's, there's no place for us to go. You know, the saints, they sought to leave the United States. And literally, while they were marching out into the plains in, in 1847, the, the U.S. went to war with Mexico, and Mexican territory became U.S. territory. <laughs> it just annexed Like, them. it did. Like, <laughs> as they were walking away from the United States, the United States is like, nope. <laughs> And like turned the country and all of a sudden the Great Basin became U.S. territory. And Brigham Young and, and a lot in the early prophets, they really tried to get that that state of Deseret all set up to where they could have their own nation state. But, you know, that never came to fruition. And so they, they kind of were playing both sides of the aisle. They tried to get statehood and they were trying to get representation with the United States and appeasing that. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's history. a really fascinating history. But at the same time, they were also trying to establish their own nation, right? Um, so yeah, they were trying to leave, but there's nowhere else to run anymore. And that was Elder Holland's message. And so we have to think differently now about these scriptures than we ever have had to before, because these people got to leave. If they, if they were in war, the God could say, listen, leave, I've prepared a land for you, but now there's nowhere to go anymore. There's nowhere to run. Some Pacific island. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, you know, you one off. Maybe one of a family can move to a Pacific island, right? But but as a but as a people, there's nowhere to go anymore. And so we really have to now, I believe, start turning into the narratives that we've, we can't run away from narratives anymore. And in a way, I think that's, that may be sometimes what's, what happened is people ended up feeling that they could physically leave, but they always went with themselves, right? It's that idea right. that you can't run away from yourself. And if you, if you had a right. narrative about God, that didn't simply get left in the land you left. You carried that with you. And so in a lot of ways, running away physically masked the symptom, masked what was actually going on beneath. And so even though we have this beautiful allegory that we talked about of Ether 1 through 6, of leaving the old and coming into the new, they still brought the old with them. They still ended up with the king like they did and they left in the old land. And so these are the things that we need to start leaving behind. And this is this for me anyway has been where my discipleship has come, where my repentance process is I can't run away anymore. I, there's no land for me to run away to. So all I have to do is lift where I stand and change the narrative of where I'm at. And so when we talk about the Cain narrative, and so in verse 22, going back to uh, verse 22 in, in chapter 8, there's a cross-reference here in, in verse 21 and 22 to Helaman in 6. And that's fascinating in Helaman 6 because when the secret combinations came among the Lamanites, you know, when the Lamanites had been converted to the gospel and the secret combinations came into there, when we turn to Helaman 6, number one, it says in verse 27, it, it talks about Cain again. So there's Cain popping up again. That same being who did plot with Cain that he would murder his brother Abel and it would not be known into the world and he did plot with Cain and his followers from that time forth. 
Well, there's the Cain narrative again. Now, the thing is, is Mm -hmm. nobody here is going out and plotting murder against anyone else. That's not the point of this. The point of the Cain narrative, the more subtle meta narrative, not just a murder to get gain, but it's that we accept the use of violence for order. They accepted the use of violence for gain. We accept the use of violence for order. And when we do that, we're, we're setting up and, and exhibiting in the same narratives, the same ways of thinking. We just kind of move the goalposts to where we want them and think we're actually being different and more moral. When in this particular case, when the secret combinations came to the Lamanites, the Lamanites didn't use violence in Helaman 6. In fact, this is one of my favorite scriptures, and we talked about it when we read it. In Helaman 6.37, And it came to pass that the Lamanites did hunt the band of the robbers Gadiatin, and they did preach the word of God among them, among the more wicked part of them, insomuch that this band of robbers was utterly destroyed from among the Lamanites. I love everything about that verse. I love every word about that verse. I love the whole thing where it says they did hunt the band of Gadiatin down. They hunted them down. I mean, it gives you this whole thing, like they're tracking them. You know, there's this whole thing, like, you know, they're putting their ear to the ground and they're tracking them and they're, and they're, you know, they're checking the heat of the fire to see how long. And as soon as they find them, they're like, hey guys, <laughs> I got a message from Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> or however they opened it up. I don't know. But I can see like missionaries showing up. They're like, hey guys, I've been trying to find you for like the last two weeks, but man, you guys are fast. I got a message for you. Right, I don't know how they did this, but they did preach the gospel of Jesus Christ unto them and they destroyed them out of the land because they preached the word of God and by preaching the word of God in them, they were no longer their enemies. And this goes back to President Kimball's false gods we worship that we bring the gospel to our enemies that they're no longer our enemies. So when we see that these wicked combinations come among us, whether or not it's a political machination, and I'm fine with it being a political machination, everything that I've said, I'm okay with that. It's just, that's all that's ever talked about. And the average person has no context to that. And so we dismiss these scriptures as either we otherize the other political party from we are, they they must be the secret combinations because I don't have any context to this. So it must be them and them, they don't have any context to it. So they demonize the other person and like, it must be them. So we're always otherizing each other in this way. When we look at this only as a political machination, But when we bring this down to a meta-narrative, and we realize that in both Ether 8, when it talks about secret combinations, and in both Helaman 6, when it talks about secret combinations, they both invoke Cain, and they both invoke that story of the first murder. Mm -hmm. And that story of the first murder set up the the story of civilization, the underpinning meta-narrative by which we all live. And that, that is where, for me... I'm like, I, I have context to that because that's, that's a part of my identity and I've got to work on that. You know, when Christ comes, he changes that narrative to teach the people, Hey, I didn't come as a Messiah King in order to go out and kill your enemies for you. I came as a Messiah King in order to be killed for you. And that's what I think is so interesting about the when we were talking about Third Nephi, the difference between the narratives of of the chapters pre, preceding chapter eleven, where you know it talks about the destruction of the people, but then Christ comes and he comes to them, and he he opens his hands to them and he says, "Come see the nail prints in my hand. Come see, I'm not the God who 
destroys your enemies by killing them. I'm the God who destroys your enemies by being killed. And wow, that's different, right? And so the like you were talking about, you know, whether whether these secret combinations are are political in nature or, you know, are capitalistic in nature or socialistic in nature or whatever, you know, whatever sort of name or brand you want to put on them and say, this is something I don't like, therefore it must be an evil secret combination. The response is the same. It's always the same. Live and teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. And so, you know, the source of these secret combinations, we can, like I said, you can go down to that rabbit hole all you want, but you're just going further into darkness. The response to the evil of the world is the Lord has always given us the same way to deal with that when we've looked to him. So like the the example of Omer, you know, he told him to leave. The people that wanted to be part of that went with him. There's a later king who is willing to receive the prophets and the people are persecuting him. I think it's calm in this later chapter. And I like how it says here um, in chapter 11, it came to pass that the prophets were rejected by the people and they fled unto calm for protection for the people sought to destroy them. And they prophesied unto calm many things. And he was blessed in all the remainder of his days. So I thought it was so interesting, you know, calm was this, uh, was a king that the, the prophets could go to when they were persecuted by the people. Um, and, you know, he received blessings because of that. It was a, an interesting sort of f- different type of fleeing narrative from what happened uh, with Omer. In chapter 9, you know, talking about Akish, don't make deals with bad people because Jared and his daughter ended up finding out that <laughs> you shouldn't do that. So Akish, you know, Akish ends up uh, not being very trustworthy. And, but uh, it says in, in chapter nine, verse 12, and there began to be a war between the sons of Akish and Akish, which lasted for the space of many years under the destruction of nearly all of the people of the kingdom. Yea, even all save it were 30 souls and they who fled with the house of Omer. Basically, it almost destroyed the whole, the whole civilization, right? This whole thing. And thus, and then in verse 20, it says, And thus the Lord did pour out his blessings upon this land, which was choice above other lands. And he commanded that whosoever should possess the land should possess it unto the Lord, or they should be destroyed when they were ripened in iniquity. For upon such, saith the Lord, I will pour out the fullness of my wrath. Now, Ben, you and I were talking a little bit before, and this goes back to chapter 8, verse 22, when it says that, the Lord will not suffer that the blood of his saints, which shall be shed by them, shall always cry unto the, cry unto him from the ground for vengeance upon them, and yet he avenge them not. Because in the, in the Cain story, we have Abel crying from the ground. His blood cries from the ground. And blood is always symbolic of life. So it's, it's this life that's crying from, from the ground. And for me personally, I've always had a lot of really interesting thoughts about this because you know, there's this internet meme that, uh, you know, I, I've shared a few times over the years and, and that it's always made me pause to think when it talks about Paul and about Paul coming into heaven. And so it's this imagery of like, what is heaven like? And it's like, I like to think that when Paul comes into heaven after persecuting so many people, when he was Saul and killing the early Christians, that it was the Christians that he had killed who came running out of the gates of heaven to, to embrace him and to love him. That's heaven there's this loving forgiveness and kindness. And yet in some of these scriptures, and it's all throughout the Book of Mormon and and in the Bible about the blood coming out, crying for vengeance, almost like this eye for an eye thing. 
And this is, it's hard to think about because are we really talking about this kind of vengeance where God's going to come out and then reign with vengeance to, to give all of the wicked people their comeuppance? And Ben, you had, you had some interesting things to say about this when I get this, but when we come into Cain, Cain, God, the very first murder, God does not kill him back. Cain is not treated with eye for an eye justice. So it's an interesting thing to think about. What, what did you have to th- say about that, Ben? Well, so we often think about this scripture, you know, you, you referenced 22, um, that we often think in terms of, okay, the Lord is going to, you know, the people are killed and then their blood cries to the Lord. And then the Lord says, okay, you know, uh, you, you've bugged me enough. Um, you've cried to me for X number of hours. That's the threshold that's required in order for me to go kill the people that killed you. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of doing a caricature of this, this concept here, but, um, the idea being that, you know, uh, the Lord does seek eye for an eye vengeance um, upon people, you know, that they need to to be killed. And the Lord actively pursues this type of thing, you know, and it's really hard to it's really hard to make the case that that is a narrative of the actual character of God. Um, and there's several reasons for that. Um, one, it contradicts a lot of other scriptures that we have in it. And the other is that it, it, it would be inconsistent because there's um there's just way too many instances we know of where um murderers get away with it completely you know to to the end of their lives they're not um they're not taken out by the lord so to speak right so um obviously there's something wrong with sort of that that narrative there and i think it goes back to it, it it's explained very well by the Cain narrative that you talked about and here uh, rather than this talking from the perception of the righteous looking at what the Lord's doing to the wicked. What this scripture is talking about is the perception of the wicked looking at what they fear the Lord will do to them. And and the reason I think that that is a much more consistent way of looking at it is, is there's a lot of reasons for that, but it does fit the Cain narrative much better than, than any other narrative. Because what does Cain say, you know, after this, he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Um, everybody's going to want to kill me. Um, and so I'll have to go here and there and, 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 you know, everybody will, will seek, seek my life. So this is Cain's own narrative. This is not what the Lord has told him that everybody's going to try to kill you. Cain says that about himself. And so here I see this verse is actually sort of a um, an expression of the attitude of the wicked towards what's um, you know what's going to happen. And and why do they persist in these secret combinations? Because they're trying to um, persist with this lie. They're lying to themselves. They're lying to everybody else around them about what has just happened, about who they've murdered and what really they deserve and because of their murders. And so they're living in this constant fear of the vengeance of God, the constant fear of the blood of those that they've murdered coming against them. And and that's why, you know, in their life, they persist in always trying to um, uh prevent this, you know, they become paranoid. You actually read about um, pretty much any sort of uh, what we would call dictator or despot um, throughout history. Once they have taken out all of their enemies, you know, in order to maintain power, they 
these things, they become very paranoid, right? And so they're constantly looking around them for anybody that's trying to kill them. And so that's the whole Kane narrative. Like it literally happens to the psyche of a person. This is, you know, very uh, consistent psychology that happens to the person that they're always concerned about somebody trying to take them out because of how many people they've taken out. Um, and, and so that's what I see happening here is this, this is just an expression, um, like I said, of the attitude of people towards the Lord, um, or towards reality, as we might say, because often the scriptures will say the Lord, they're just, they really just talking about reality. I know that goes back to your concept of the wrath of God. Um, and so anyway, that, that, like I said, I, I feel like this ties up really well with what he's talking with the rest of chapter eight on the whole Cain narrative. It really fits. Yeah, it's how fascinating is that that we have our own embodiment of justice that we create, and then we project that onto reality and even onto God. That this is the way God exists. Obviously, I killed, so I'm going to be killed back. I did this, so the expectation is this is going to be done to me, and that never came from God. That was never God from the beginning. In fact, He never punishes Cain back. He lets Cain go. And in fact, it's Cain's own refusal to empty and to come into these things that when he's cursed, and it says that he's going to basically walk upon the, as a fugitive upon the face of the earth, it's it's the anti-beatitude, right? Because we know the third beatitude of being meek, you inherit the earth. And yet Cain doesn't empty. He's not mourning over the emptying. And now he shows an inability of meekness and he loses his place in the earth. It's just, it's just the anti-beatitude going backwards. And so the curse is when we don't empty out the natural man, the context. And this is why I love this brother of Jared and the Jaredite story so much is because when we don't empty out everything that we came from, God is leading us into a land that we've never been into. He's leading us into a way of being that we have no context to. He's leading us. And all of a sudden, halfway through the journey, we're like, this is amazing, God. How can it possibly be this amazing? And we kind of want to plateau and to stop there, just like the Jaredites did. And he's like, no, 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 no. You haven't even begun to reach the depths of chaos I'm about to lead you through. And then he's like, get ready. You know, right? And then he leads us in. And and like you were talking about at the beginning, when we started talking about this, Ben, about that repeated baptism, we we have to go through these, these repeated experiences of baptism, of being submerged in chaos and like near destruction, just for the Lord to show us that he preserves us and brings us into these new places. And yet even then we still hearken back to the old us that we came from. And so it just goes to show that in our whole life, this relationship, this beatitude relationship of going through the whole story of the beatitudes that we've talked about so much, it's a daily thing. This is the enduring to the end that I've come to love and enjoy, is that there's no coming to your promised land where you're not also at the beginning of your journey, right? It's it's that there's this consistent journey and this consistent emptying that we find And in that view, unless we are continually emptying and repenting and seeing God anew, we we keep re-entering that Cain narrative of thinking that when we do something, something deserves to happen back to us, sometimes even good, as opposed to just being there in the present. And this is where my stoicism comes out into the forefront, where it's just you accept reality for reality. What is today is what is today. And I find that's Christ's message in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's like, don't take any thought for the morrow. The morrow takes care of the things for itself. 
when it's not that we don't act today. It's not that we don't say, hey, look, I have something I need to do tomorrow and there's a few things that I need to do to get there tomorrow. But it's the whole purpose of getting rid of the anxiety, the the depression, the things which will keep us from just being here in the day. And so in that way, yeah, I, I read this, this the same way that you were talking about, that this vengeance has far more to do about our perception than it has to do with reality. And so we see that playing out. In fact, in in verses 35 here towards the end, and it says, and it came to pass that when they had humbled themselves, this is a, this is also chapter nine goes through and talks about the famine that God sends mm-hmm. and the poisonous serpents. They attribute these things to God so that when they finally repent, it came to pass that when they had humbled themselves sufficiently before the Lord, he did send rain upon the face of the earth and the people began to revive again. And there began to be fruit in the North countries and in all the countries round about. And the Lord did show forth his power unto them in preserving them from famine. And so it's just, it's, it's fascinating the scriptures about how this proactive God is supposedly seeking their destruction just so that they turn and they worship him. I, I don't necessarily buy into that particular narrative anymore. I, I know at one point I probably did a little bit stronger in that, you know, you serve God and he blesses you in this transactional relationship. Whereas I see the Lord now as this loving heavenly parent who is allowing us to go through our own experiences and we are creating our own. I, I use the, the, uh, the story several, several podcasts ago about teaching my children how to do yard work. And when I was out there micromanaging them and getting after them for things that they weren't doing right. And, in in really trying to make the yard, what I wanted it to be and making and using them to get it to be how I wanted it to be. The work was long. It was arduous. And quite frankly, it was, it, it was horrible. It was just the, the whole experience was horrible. And, <laughs> It, it, it never looked good. I, I hated doing it. The kids hated doing it. We were always in conflict with each other. But yet then at some point I turned it over to them and I was like, this has got to change. I'm like, you know what? Let them just go be creative in their own way. So then I sent them out there. I'm like, okay, so here's a few of the particulars that have to be done. Th- these things just have to be done. You go out and figure out a way to do it. So then they would come in and they would ask me for questions. Whereas, and before I would just dictate to them exactly how it was supposed to be done. Then at that point I switched gears and I was like, okay, let's do this differently. So then I went out and I said, okay, well, how would, how do you think? Let's, let's think this through. And so I would follow them in how they would do this. And inevitably, most of the time they would do it in a different way than I would have done it. But when they did it their way, it looked good, even if it didn't look the same as it would have if I would have done it. And they started to have a sense of pride in doing it how they wanted to do it. You know, how do you cut the grass? Do you go and do you cut the grass in this particular way? Do you cut the grass in this particular way? How do you trim this? Do you trim it this way? Do you trim it that way? How do you scale this back or whatever it was we were doing? And then I had this big aha moment. I'm like, my goodness, I think that's how I think I view God in that first sense that God is always dictating to me orders. And if I don't do those orders, I get into trouble. When in reality, as I've come into this other sphere of seeing God and almost like repenting from how I saw him before, it's in this new way. It's I see him as coming out and helping me create the ways that I'm going to do this. And so in that journey and in that process, bringing that back here to our scriptures, I can see how I might ask for vengeance upon somebody else. And God's like, oh, that's interesting. Let's follow through with that to see how that plans out for you. 
and then seeing the consequence of that. And then later on, I course correct and I'm like, you know what? I don't need to ask vengeance upon anybody. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> you know, I, I think about the story of uh, of the apostles in the New Testament when they go into the into the city that reject them and they come yeah. out and they're really incensed and they come to Jesus and they're like, let's call down fire and destroy the city. And Jesus is like, okay, um, that's, that's definitely one option. Um, <laughs> let's think about something else. What's a different possibility? <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus says. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> And so it's it's just this way that we, I think the scriptures really do reflect so much of ourselves into them that once we really begin to use the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as our lens to interpret the rest of scripture, the nature of God changes and we begin to see in a lot of places where man has read himself and has, has written himself into the narrative as though that's God's way of doing things. and I, And God allows it. And I think at some point I was really frustrated at that point. I was really frustrated at the fact that that happened because for me, it created a bit of confusion. It was like, how could God be a God of order and allow all this confusion to come into the text that's not perfectly pure? And my experience with coming to the scriptures over and over and over again has been one of, I've had to be humbled in a lot of ways where I create open space for people who have who whose God who has entrusted to write this record and for their own strengths and their own weaknesses, just as God does the same for me. And so then when I go through and I said, you know what, I think I think that might be a little bit of man reading himself into the text, I get this overwhelming love now. I don't get frustration anymore. I get love. I get I get the love that God has for them and the patience and the forbearance, and all these things, all these great qualities that I love that God, I feel from God for me, I see for them. And so my frustration is gone. And I just, it's a fantastic point. So when, when I look at the Cain story, I start to feel an incredible amount of sorrow for Cain, simply because he didn't empty. He didn't allow himself that moment. And I know what that feels like in moments of my life when I didn't do that. And yet he he does that in perpetuity. And so the rest of these stories leading out until the end of chapter 11, I see that in these stories of the Jaredites. I see that as one of the main narratives of these chapters. God's patience in letting people play out their own ways of doing things. And he keeps sending in prophets and they reject him and they keep he keeps preserving them and they keep, and he, what we talked about, God's wrath in just allowing reality to be reality. And man reads into God violence and, and anger and all of these things, whereas God is just letting people be who and what they are. You know, as you were talking about that, that really, you know, that that is a very good explanation, in my opinion, of the story, the parable of the prodigal son. You have this son who wants to do it his way, you know, and so he goes out, the Lord, the Lord, <laughs> the, the father gives him his inheritance, he goes out and does his own thing. And he faces the consequences of all of his actions and ends up in the gutter. And as he's looking back to his father, he says, I'm going to go back and I'll just, I'll accept the punishment of, of my way of life. I'll become just a servant in his house, right? And so he, he still has this view of his father in this way. 
And he, but he's humble. He is humble, even though he still views his father in a way that he thinks his father is going to just, you know, punish him or or relegate him because of the consequences of his actions. And so he returns to his father and the opposite happens. His father comes out to him and meets him and, and you know, puts the cloak on, puts the ring on his finger, kills the fact, all that sort of stuff. And that is this whole deal. That is the whole um, of what you were describing, uh, it seems to me, is that parable of the prodigal son. So I just, I just think that's really fascinating. That's that's what was coming into my mind as you were describing all of that. Yeah, I think um, there's probably not a whole lot to add to the rest of these chapters. You know, uh, this stuff happens, <laughs> um, and some more stuff happens. And then uh, we, you know, it, it's almost like Moroni is like, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And then we're going to get to Ether. Okay, I have some things to say about Ether. And so he, he kind of closes closes out. Okay, and then Ether's born. And, you know, obviously Moroni didn't write the, you know, the chapters in there, separate them into chapters. But um, then starting with chapter 12, he's like, okay, now I have some things to say about Ether. So this is interesting. And chapter 12 that we're going to talk about next time really feels um, very much like you were just talking about in terms of, you know, Moroni is reading all of this and he's recognizing his own inadequacies and weaknesses. And he's concerned about how people are going to read this and not understand what he's trying to say. And so will they please have charity, Lord? And Lord says, you have charity. And so when they have charity, they'll understand you. And so it's just so fascinating, you know, um, basically everything that you were just talking about to me, um, is like Shiloh's version of, of Ether chapter 12, where, where Moronite <laughs> goes through all of this. And uh, uh, 12 is, is powerful. There's going to be a lot for us to talk about in it next time. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited. Next week will be great, and we'll get into 12. 12 is one of my favorites, too. And so I look forward to talking with that. So until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>